When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'd never played poker in my life and really had zero interest in the game at all. In any games, I'm not a games player. Maria Konnikova didn't even own a deck of cards while growing up. But now, she's a professional poker player. She's won over $300,000 in tournament money. But that wasn't her goal going in. What she was trying to do was study human behavior. I became fascinated by the role that chance plays in our lives and the limits of our own personal control and how we can learn to tell the difference between the things that we control and the things we don't. Maria has a PhD in psychology, and she started playing poker to better understand how humans make decisions, how to choose what risks to take and which ones to avoid, and how we can all improve that process. I gotta tell you, I was very excited to sit down and talk to her for the podcast because I think the very things that she is studying are more important than ever risk. As we get vaccinated and COVID-19 restrictions are relaxing, we are faced with constant risk assessments. Do we eat inside a restaurant? Do we send our kids to summer camp? Do we go to a friend's wedding? Do we plan that international vacation? Sound familiar? Probably a lot of people trying to answer these same questions and not quite sure how to navigate it all. So today, it's time to sharpen our risk assessment skills and start chasing life. Some people want to be optimistic and some people, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily pessimistic. It's much more along the lines of cautionary. That's my wife, Rebecca. You know, we were talking recently about our daughters and how they've each responded to the curveballs this pandemic has thrown at us. I mean, we have a child who's always been a risk assessor since very, very little. And they responded almost accordingly to the the circumstances as they had always, you know, responded to yeah, some kind right. of risk. I remember because we decided to keep the girls out of school. Mm-hmm. And I had to go talk to each of them and tell them this. And I started with the youngest, who's really risk-averse. I will not take risks. You know, I will not jump off that. I will not, you know, whatever, ski down that. (laughs) So she immediately was like, oh, yeah, no, no, I'm not going to go to school. And my older two daughters, oldest one in particular, refused to talk to me for a week after I made that decision. You know, it was also, I think, to some extent, a tolerance of risk that's different. And I think that's a real insight not just for this family, but for the world. Mm-hmm. Even to the littlest, like, w- when we would think about, well, we need to do this. Like, we need to get groceries. How? What risk are we putting that person at to help us get the groceries? Like, right. is it less of a risk for me to go in, or is it greater risk for it to be delivered? I mean, all of those things were Consider are considered. The past year has been confusing, for sure, for everybody, for us, for you. 
I know Rebecca and I aren't the only ones weighing these risks and trying to make some tough decisions for our family safety. The biggest decision that we had to make was whether or not we would allow people to hold the baby and spend time with us and help us out after he was born. One decision I made early on in the pandemic was not to celebrate my mother's birthday in person. It was one of the first birthdays I've missed in almost 30 years. I had to turn down a teaching position when I learned that I would be expected to be in person beginning in September. I have a two and a half year old who is getting a lot of her care from grandparents who are high risk. So I really couldn't expect them to continue taking care of her if I was in person teaching and I couldn't be in person teaching without them taking care of her. It's really been the everyday routine decisions like visiting nearby friends or eating at a local restaurant that still feel really uncertain or anxiety inducing for me. I basically sequestered myself in my room upstairs for three weeks, created a schedule of when I could come down, wore masks and gloves, was absolutely petrified of what I could do to my parents. And it was definitely one of the most terrifying, isolating, loneliest experiences of my life. Here's the thing. Life is always full of uncertainties. You know that. But we've really felt it more than ever before during this global pandemic, where the information upon which we base risk is constantly evolving. But what if I told you that the key to handling these tough decisions may be a game of poker? Well, at least that's according to Maria Konnikova's newest book called The Biggest Bluff. She says that life is like a game of poker because they are both full of unknowns, probabilities, and incomplete information. And yet, in both situations, we are still forced to make a move. I think you need to try to get very good at making decisions with the information you have and get comfortable with uncertainty and with the fact that any decision is going to be inherently probabilistic. There's no such thing as certainty in anything in life. Right? There is no such thing as 100%. If you get up to 98%, you're ecstatic, but... 2% is a lot. 1% is a lot. All of those tiny percentages are actually huge when it comes to talking about billions of people and billions of outcomes. And, And so the best you can do is to make the best decision you can with the information you have, knowing that it's never going to be perfect. You know, it's this idea that I tell people something is 0.5% lethal. Now, there'll be a certain group of people who will say 0.5% lethal. So you're telling me one in 200 people will die. We better be careful. Uh, Another group of people will hear the same data, the same information, and say, so you're telling me I'm 99.5% good, right? What's the big deal? Same, Same data, different populations. But when it comes to life or death, it has to change, right? I think that's absolutely right. And as the stakes go up, those tiny percentages have to mean more. And one of the things that I noticed very early in the pandemic, so I'm in New York, and I was here, you know, in March, April, May of last year, June, when it was really, really bad. And there were other parts of the country where, you know, everything was fine at that time. And that personal experience really colored how people perceived risk. Even vaccinated New Yorkers are still wearing masks outside because it was such a visceral experience. And that's how the mind works, not through being told, oh, it's 1%, it's 
0.5%, whatever it is. What you're saying, I think, is totally true. I'm living in Atlanta right now, and we did not have those same surges that you had in the spring of 2020 in New York. I can tell you just my own anecdotal personal experience is that people are, are a lot less likely to wear masks. They think perhaps there's fear-mongering, it's too big a deal. And as you point out, I mean, we are making real decisions right now. How would you advise people to navigate these decisions? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that any decision like that has to start with an acknowledgement of your personal biases, because otherwise, when you look at the data, you'll think you're being objective. You'll think you're dispassionately evaluating things, but you're not. I mean, every time we look at things, it's through our own subjective personal <laughs> lens. So I always urge people when they're making decisions to, first of all, just sit down with yourself and figure out, okay, what are my biases, right? What are my preconceived beliefs? This is an incredibly uncertain and ambiguous situation because there's uncertainty around even the probabilities. So be okay with changing your mind as the data evolve, as the knowledge evolves. You know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I'd say I'm not taking my mask off. Now I actually don't wear a mask when I'm outside because we've seen the data, we've seen kind of what outdoor transmission looks like. And my risk calculus has changed. It's not waffling. It's not wibble wobbling. It doesn't mean that I'm not committed. It means that I'm doing my best in a very uncertain situation. It's sort of interesting to me, Maria, that as humans, as you point out, we like certainty, but almost nothing is certain. It is interesting that we evolve that way to want the certainty fully knowing that there's nothing in life that is really certain. Is that why it's really, is that the heart of why it's so difficult for us to assess risk? I think so. I think that there are a few things going on here. And one of them is this desire for black and white, not shades of gray, for things that have a neat causal story. Because our brains are storytelling machines. That's what they do. They're constantly creating narratives to make sense of the world. And so when all of a sudden you say, actually, the world doesn't work that way. And oftentimes there's no neat cause and effect. There's no neat narrative. There's no neat story. There are lots of other things. It's noisy. It our brain says, no, no, no. I want I want the clean. Just give me the answer. Tell me yes or no. Tell me what the story is. And it's so difficult to kind of get past that bias. You know, it's very interesting with this particular pandemic as well. And I've been a medical reporter for 20 years, so I've covered all sorts of different stories. But this particular pandemic became really politicized. The question becomes, when you are then making decisions in that context, how do you make sure you're doing the best thing for yourself? That's the million-dollar question, and and I think that it's incredibly difficult. I do my best. Obviously, I do live in New York. I am liberal. My sister is a doctor. She was in the ICU for, for many months during this pandemic, and... Of course, that colors my experience. And so I have to acknowledge that. And then I have to try to do the best with the data, figure out who am I listening to? What are their credentials? I'm not going to listen to someone who suddenly become an armchair epidemiologist. So I think trying to figure out who's actually an expert, who actually has experience here? Whose opinions should I listen to because I don't have the necessary background? I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor. I'm a psychologist. And 
I play poker, right? And I'm a writer. Those are not good <laughs> credentials for trying to figure out what's going on here. But what I do have is a good grasp of risks, of what 1% means. One, one of the things you, you wrote in your book is the best way to understand uncertainty is to bet on it. I think you've sort of alluded to this, uh, but, but what did you mean by that specifically? Yeah, so I, I stole that idea from Immanuel Kant, who actually had this really wonderful example using a doctor of how often people have false certainty and a false sense of confidence in their opinions. So he said, you know, imagine you go to a doctor and the doctor looks at you and gives you a diagnosis and you leave. Now, what if you actually stopped for a second and forced that doctor to put money on the diagnosis? How much would the doctor be willing to bet that the diagnosis is correct? $10, $100, $1,000, $10,000, $100,000, his marriage, his happiness, his life? Where's the line? All of a sudden, you're forced to actually ask yourself, wait, well, what's my basis for making this? Imagine if everyone on Twitter and, uh, and social media in general had to pay, had to kind of put money <laughs> for every opinion. I think a lot of our armchair uh, experts would suddenly evaporate. <laughs> I, I think you're right. You know, one thing I'll tell you, um, sort of along those lines, a lot of times what patients will say to me, which I actually think is a very fair question, they'll say to me some version of, what if this were your mother? Or what if this were your daughter? How can we take that same approach to all the decisions we're making right now when it comes to emerging from the pandemic? That's such a great question. And you have to try to be practical about the answer because we can't force people to actually put money on their decisions. But I think that if you get into the mental habit of almost fact-checking yourself and thinking, okay, you know, I'm about to make this decision. How much am I willing to risk in your words, you know, pretend this is your mother, pretend this is your grandmother, pretend this is your sister, your daughter, whatever it is, would I be willing to risk that? You know, do I think that the data support what I'm about to do, given that the person I'm seeing here might be actually someone I really love and care about? If we constantly go through that calculus, I think that our risk assessment will change in a pretty profound way. Our brains are constantly assessing risks every minute of every day. Just crossing the street requires a lot of mental calculations that we do intuitively. These calculations are called heuristics. They're like mental shortcuts that help us make quick assessments. Without them, it would take us forever to do anything, to even cross a simple street. Making these sort of snap decisions is easy when it's something that we're used to, but under COVID, that simply hasn't been the case. Most of us have never had to assess whether going inside a restaurant might potentially make us sick or even kill us, or if being in the office was going to be safe. Making these constant calculations is simply exhausting. We don't really know what the real chances of getting infected are, so there's no guarantee that we're going to make the right decisions. But we still have to spend a lot of time weighing our options. We can't just say, oh, I can't assess this risk, so I'm going to shut down. You know, poker teaches you that it's important to sometimes take 
gambles, but only smart gambles, only when you have an edge, only when you know what's going on. Never gamble just for the sake of gambling. Those are the people who go broke, but never avoid it because you're too scared. You're going to go broke. <laughs> and I think in both poker and in life, your goal is not to go broke. I think the point that Maria is making is that if you never take any risks, you're going to lose, both in poker and in life. So after the break, I'm going to tell you something surprising, how sometimes being too cautious can also be dangerous. And now back to Chasing Life. My husband jokes that he married a specialist in emerging infectious diseases who also does education, and he couldn't have married better for the pandemic. Danielle Lantain is a professor at Tufts University where she studies the intersection of civil engineering and public health. She lives in Somerville, Massachusetts with her two kids and her husband. Throughout this past year, her risk assessments evolved based on the science. Like many, she started out bleaching her groceries and sheltering in place. But as more data came out, she adjusted her choices and loosened her restrictions. I felt like knowing the data and having access to the international data and knowing the transmission routes and trusting the kind of mitigation measures really helped us move from a lockdown stage where we were wiping our groceries to a stage where we were more doing outdoor things with masks that felt pretty safe. Unlike Danielle, the policymakers in Somerville weren't as quick in updating their risk assessments based on the new data. February 2021, the CDC said it was safe for schools to reopen as long as they followed certain safety protocols. But the majority of Somerville High School didn't resume classes until only a few weeks ago, meaning that most of the students there went 15 months without in-person learning. While there was a lot of talk about the risk of school reopening, there was not a lot of talk about the risk of not opening school. What are the risks of not opening school for those with food insecurity, for those in households that might not be safe for them, for those with special needs that need specialized therapy? Danielle has been a vocal proponent of school reopening. She thinks local officials played it, quote, too safe, and that there will be consequences for that. You talk about isolation. You talk about mental health effects. You talk about learning loss. You talk about lack of motivation. For a month, for two, for three, if it's a pandemic and you can't leave the house, those are things we have to take as a society. For 15 months, that starts adding up. My wife and I struggled with the same thing, whether or not to send our kids back to school this past fall. When we did the calculations at the time, we felt that staying home for a period of time was going to be the best option for the girls. But after more data emerged and the risk calculations started to change, they went back to school. No matter what we decided, we knew there was always going to be a potential loss. That's why it's called risk. But we've got to weigh the costs and the benefits of each decision and then be willing to update our assessments. Fact is, some people are just going to be more tolerant of risk, while others are going to be more averse to it. A lot of us probably have a friend who goes skydiving or gobbles up deep-fried grasshoppers, while another might hate to venture outside their familiar neighborhood. To some degree, these differences can be chalked up to their upbringing and their past experiences. 
Another part might be genetic. One study found that a higher tolerance for risky behavior can be associated with a bigger amygdala. That's the region of the brain involved in the fight-or-flight response. Another study found that people who engaged in risky behavior have less gray matter, that is, neurons, in regions of the brain that are involved in decision-making and risk assessment. I've been reading a lot about this. I've seen all these fascinating studies, and while they are really interesting, they don't prove cause and effect. So it remains that classic nature versus nurture debate. And as you can imagine, researchers are having a hard time trying to tease it all apart in the middle of a pandemic. Truth is, assessing risk is hard because there is no right equation for most of the decisions that we face in life. No one-size-fits-all answer. And our circumstances keep changing as life moves along. And on top of that, in this pandemic, there's still a lot that's unknown about this virus, what we should or shouldn't be doing to keep safe. And after months of lockdown measures, we've all kind of gotten used to what we can and can't do, but that's now changing again with vaccinations. The key is to be nimble, to follow the data, to let logic drive your decisions, to check for your own biases, and then to keep updating. Change is hard, but change should actually be viewed as a sign of progress. Dr. Jay Varkey is an infectious disease expert at Emory. He's quick to point out that there is at least one consistent message we can all focus on to help guide our decision-making. Vaccination is effective. Vaccination is our tool to drive down rates. As rates of new infections go down in the community, that opens up our ability to do more things safely. If you start getting into that mindset, I think it makes it easier for people to venture out confidently, especially if they're vaccinated. Everyone's risk tolerance is going to be personal. For example, the CDC now recommends that for fully vaccinated people, it isn't necessary to wear a mask outside. But that doesn't mean everyone is there yet. We need to be okay with that. We should be tolerant of that. We don't know what that individual is going through. We don't know the immune system of their loved ones at their home. And we don't know whether they're wearing a mask because they're afraid of COVID or they just happen to be going through an awful allergy season. There's nothing that should be threatening from somebody wearing a simple mask. In these uncertain times, risk assessment is tough. Trust me, it isn't easy for me either. But let's try to follow Maria's advice and think of it like poker. As long as you're making the calculations and reevaluating whenever you get more information, you should be confident that you're making the right call. All of a sudden, the cases are different. We understand the disease. We understand what's going on. People are starting to get vaccinated. Okay, my calculus has changed completely. Will I, you know, will I take a walk? Will I go here? Will I do that? Yeah, I'm going to start becoming more comfortable doing that. And so you have to... I keep saying this, but it's just so important. You have to constantly look at the data, constantly look at the trade-offs, constantly update and make your decision accordingly. And yes, that's going to change from person to person, and that's going to change from location to location, and that's going to change from day to day, and that's okay. One last thing before we go. I wanted to address a big question that I've been hearing from a lot of people. What's the deal with booster shots for the COVID-19 vaccine? Let me give you the most honest answer. I don't know. Fact is, we don't know how long protection is going to last from any of the vaccines available today, including the three that are authorized in this country. Some public health officials, like U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, have said that Americans should prepare to need a booster within a year. 
But others, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, say that we may not need one for a while. We're trying to figure out how long that durability of protection lasts. We know it goes out at least six months and likely considerably longer, but we don't know exactly how long. So what the companies are doing appropriately, and the NIH is working with them to develop that information to find out if you get to a point where the durability of the protection starts to go down a bit and go lower and lower, you may need a boost to keep it up within that highly protective range. And these booster shots might also be different from what you're used to getting for tetanus or measles. Typical boosters are an additional dose of the same vaccine you already got. But a coronavirus booster could possibly be tweaked to protect you against new variants. So basically, again, there's still a lot of unknowns, and the issue will only be resolved with more time and more data. So the only thing we can do now is to wait, pay attention to the science, and then follow it. Please keep the questions coming. We want to hear from you. We have an episode coming up that's all about gratitude. It's been a really tough year and a half, but there is a lot to be grateful for, so tell us. And I'll tell you mine as well. Record your thoughts as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. This episode was produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gaspare, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our medical writer is Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.